happens. Hey, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Man, uh, just excited to be with you guys this morning as we continue on in our study of the book of Acts. Um, I spent some time, if you can, if you can tell, I'm a little, uh, my allergies are kind of up this morning and sunburn a little bit. I was working in my yard yesterday morning. How do you guys like love to work in your yard? Anybody? Okay. Yes, some of you. Uh, I'm not with you. Uh, so... Like yesterday, I had a friend of mine come down. My grass is just in bad shape. And I had a friend of mine come down. His, his yard always looks really good. And I was like, can you just come help me figure out what to do here? And he was like, well, yeah, sure. And like, he's, very, he's such a nice guy. He's really kind. And at one point, he was kind of like, it doesn't really matter what you do because you can't hurt it because it's dead is what he meant. So, uh, so I'm trying to like revive my yard as we go along. Um, when we moved in, like our grass was really green cause it was brand new. And I just thought this is awesome. I have a green yard. And then we've been there for almost two years and it's just like progressively gotten browner and deader because I haven't really done anything to it. I mean, I prayed that God would give me a green yard, but it just like, hasn't really happened yet. Uh, so I, I, you know, what I'm finding out now is there's all of this. So I started to do a little research and there's all of this work that goes into having like a nice yard. Like I drive down the street and some people have really nice yards and I look at that and, and for a while I just kind of thought that just happened, but it doesn't. Like there's a lot of work. So yesterday I'm, I'm cutting my grass. I'm out at seven o'clock in the morning. I'm cutting my grass and I'm, and I'm laying uh, fertilizer and I'm watering it. And it's this three, four, five hour process of trying to get my yard up to a standard that I can kind of be proud of. And what I'm learning through all of this is that faithful preparation is necessary for fruitful production. That if I want to have something fruitful, then I've got to be faithful to prepare for that to to happen. It doesn't just happen. And what we're going to look at this morning is this same truth, that faithful preparation is a necessity for fruitful production. So we started two weeks ago looking at the book of Acts. And we talked about that if you look at the book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But in actuality, there's a case to be made that we could call this the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We read in the book of Acts about the work of the Holy Spirit through the early church to spread the gospel far and wide from Jerusalem outward into the nations. So if we're going to call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit, then there's a couple questions that we need to answer. Number one, we need to answer the question, who is the Holy Spirit? We spent the first week looking at it, that the Holy Spirit is not this kind of mystical force like you see in Star Wars. No, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. He is equal with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is the third part of the Trinity. He is God. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit empowers the believers. He empowers the believers to be able to carry out the work that God has decided needed to be done. And then why is the Spirit given? Why does God give the Holy Spirit to empower the believers? He does it so that they would be his witnesses. What is a witness? A witness is somebody who both sees and testifies. Somebody who sees and testifies. A witness who sees but will not testify is no good for the cause. But a witness is someone who has seen something and then tells others about it. And so he's telling the disciples here, I'm going to empower you to be my witnesses. You've seen the risen Jesus. You've seen, you have proof of the resurrection. I'm going to use you to spread the message of the gospel, the good news that our Savior lives, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so last week we landed around this statement that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God given to empower the believers to carry the gospel to the nations. 
The disciples are about to be used by Jesus to be his witnesses. What we're going to look at this morning is the way that the disciples go about preparing to do the work of the Holy Spirit. Because faithful preparation is a necessity for fruitful production. Now, this is not going to be a sermon this morning um, that is kind of like uh, God helps those who help themselves. You know, like this idea that if you do A, B, C, and D, that you're going to be able to somehow manipulate God into doing exactly what you want. That's not what this is about. However, this is about the idea that in order for God to do a great work in us and through us, there will be some preparation that needs to take place in our hearts. And there will be, need to be some preparation that takes place collectively. And what we're going to look at this morning in the scriptures is, is how that works out. Um, there's two ways to, to read the scriptures. Uh, one is, is some of the scriptures are descriptive in nature. And here's what I mean by that. Um, they're descriptive in nature, which means they just tell us about the things that have occurred. Now, there are other parts of scripture that are prescriptive in nature, which means they tell us a certain way that we should live or operate under God's authority. So we have descriptive passages that are historical. They just tell us these are the things that have happened. And then we have prescriptive passages that tell us these are the ways that you should live and operate under God's authority. So what we're going to read this morning is a descriptive passage. It's going to tell us these are the things that the disciples did. However, hidden inside this, or not hidden, but kind of intertwined inside this descriptive passage about what the disciples did are prescriptive principles. We're going to be able to draw things out of this that say these are ways that we should operate under God's authority if we're going to be prepared for God to do a good work through us in this community and around the world. So let's dig into this scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. You just stop by the connection table on your way out. Just say, hey, I don't own a Bible. We want to give you one. That's our gift to you. It's free of charge. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Also, if you have your uh, phone or your iPad, you want to follow along on the YouVersion app, uh, it's a great. If you download the YouVersion Bible app and then click on Live Events, uh, you'll have all of my uh, notes and all of my scriptures right there. You'll just look for uh, our link, Church of Cane Bay. It should have, the, uh, should have the title right there. It's a great resource. However you do it this morning, where you've got your Bible, iPad, iPhone, you want to use the screen behind me, however you do it, we want you to follow along in the scriptures this morning. So if you've got your Bible, Acts chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, where we left off last week. Verse 12. Then they, talking about the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. That's a fun passage. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his, may, of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. 
and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So when one of the men who had accompanied us all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we see in this passage there's a lot of preparation that's going on. So we need to answer just a couple of questions before we get in specifically to how the disciples prepare to do the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to answer just a couple of questions. Now, if you know anything about kind of, uh, maybe you're, uh, if you've done any kind of like journalist work or you've, you've been, uh, maybe you've even just, maybe you're just a parent and like something happens and your first questions are who, why, what, when, where, like where, you need all the basics to be able to build your case. So let's look at just kind of the basic questions here of Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 26. Who is gathered together preparing? We read that 11 of the 12 disciples are gathered together preparing. Now, we know that Judas Iscariot since then has gone out from them. We read a little bit later on what happens to Judas. It says that Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and then he decides that he feels bad about that. So he goes and he tries to give it back, and the chief priest won't take it. So it says that Judas goes out and he hangs himself. Now, when Peter talks about the fact that he fell and his bowels came out of him, what they believe is that Judas hung himself somewhere on a tree overlooking a cliff, and that at some point the branch or the rope snapped and Judas fell. Disgusting. It's pretty gross. But we read this about this kind of gruesome death that we find Judas Iscariot, the traitor, suffering. So there's 11 of the 12 disciples From now on, they'll be considered the apostles. They were the 12 that Jesus, or the 11 that Jesus chose and said, come, follow me. And they walked with him for three years and they saw his ministry. And he gives them, we're going to get into this in just a minute. He gives them specific authority and leadership responsibilities over the rest of the disciples. But it says that it wasn't just the 11 in the room, that there was a room full of nearly 120 people who had been following Jesus. And it tells us a little bit about who these people were. It says that Jesus' actual blood brothers were there. Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus. And it says that his brothers are now there. Some, we talked about this last week, some people believe that his brothers were not actually converted until his resurrection. That once they had seen Jesus raised, they knew that he was the Lord. So we have the apostles, we have some followers of Jesus. We have its brothers. And then Luke makes an interesting note. He says, also there were the women who followed Jesus and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, this is not just a throwaway passage. And I think it's specifically interesting on Mother's Day as we talk about this. Luke is writing here and he's recording that Mary, the mother of Jesus and other women were there. This shows us, Luke is showing us in this passage that women had a very important place in the life of the early church. Christianity has kind of been sent, has kind of been given this misnomer that it's repressive or oppressive of women. 
That Christianity is a religion or a system of belief that tries to hold women down. But we see here that at the very beginning of the church, Luke says, no, 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 no. There are women who are followers of Jesus and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They were there. They were at the beginning. They held an important place in the early ministry of the church. And the same is true today. Women, mothers, you hold a very, very critical and important position in the life of the church. This is not just a throwaway reference for Luke just kind of saying this. No, Luke has a real intention about telling us that there are women and the mother of Jesus are in the room. Because he wants us to know that women have a specific role inside the beginning of the church. And that they are equal in value with the men in the room. That they're equal in value. That God has specific roles for the men and specific roles for the women. But one is not more valuable than the other. They are both there together. And through men and women who are faithful to follow Jesus, God wants to do an incredible work at the beginning of the church. So that's who's in the room beginning to prepare. Where are they preparing? It tells us they're about a Sabbath journey from the Mount of Olives where they just seen Jesus ascend back to the Father. This is probably about a half a mile or three quarters of a mile away. That's about as far as you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath day. Potentially, they believe that they were gathered in the upper room where they had had the Passover meal together. But what Luke wants to show us through this is notice they were gathered together. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, and they go together to prepare. They didn't each go individually to their own homes to kind of prepare themselves individually. No, they go and they gather collectively because they recognize that if the work they're going to do, the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to do the work of of the gospel, that they're not going to be able to do it as individuals. No, no, no. They're going to need one another. And so they go and they begin to prepare collectively. And what are they preparing for? Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. Somebody who sees and testifies to the things that are being done. And then it says that he ascends. But he tells them first, he says, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be my witnesses. This would have been really, really hard for the disciples to do. Um, I was watching uh, one of my favorite TV shows. It's Friday Night Lights. Anybody watch Friday Night Lights? Anybody? No? You've seen the movie? Okay. It's a great TV show. Uh, It's about a football team in Texas. And one of the things that they really do well on Friday Night Lights is they always kind of have at the moment of a big game, the coach comes in and always gives this like really stirring speech. And they play this like explosions in the sky, music behind him. And it just gets, you know, everybody's just revved up. And I was thinking about that. Like how funny would it be if this coach comes in and he gives this just stirring, inspiring, let's go out there and win speech. The team is juiced and they're ready to take the field. And then the coach goes, all right, guys, but we don't play the game until next week. Like, how hard would that be as a football player to be like, man, I'm juiced. I'm ready to go, but now i got to wait? That's the position we find the disciples in. Jesus says, I'm, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you're going to be my witnesses. And then they see him ascend, and they go, now we have a risen Savior who's ascended back to the Father, and he's told us that we get to be his witnesses, that we get to go for him. But we got to wait. It says they go back, and they begin 
to collectively prepare themselves for the work that they're going to do. Why does Jesus command them to wait? Because he knows that if they're going to properly perform the work of the Spirit, that they have to be properly prepared to do so. And so he says, I want you to wait. And I want you to go and I want you to prepare. He doesn't just want them to perform first thing. No, no, no. He says, I want you to go and I want you to prepare. Now, this is specifically tough for us because we live in a performance-based culture. Everything in our culture is about performance. I was watching the NBA playoffs last night, and I was watching LeBron James play uh, the Brooklyn Nets. And, I mean, the guy's incredible basketball player. He's this incredible basketball player. And you watch him. If you love basketball, you just go, I want to be like LeBron James. I want to be able to do what LeBron James does. And we celebrate the performance that he puts forth on the basketball court, night in and night out. What we don't see is the hours and hours and hours and hours of preparation he spends in the gym. And he works out. And he shoots thousands of jump shots. And he spends all of his free time preparing for the night that he'll have to perform. All we see is the performance, but we rarely see the preparation that goes into this. You see, performance is simply preparation on display. It's just preparation on display. Paul, when he talks about um, the righteousness and the obedience to the Father, he uses the language of practicing these things. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15, practice these things that I've taught you. Immerse yourself in them so that all might see your progress. So before we see God using the disciples to perform great works of the Spirit, we find them together practicing walking in righteousness and preparing collectively for what the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through them. Because faithful preparation is a necessity for fruitful production. And God will not do a fruitful work if we are not prepared for him to do so. And we see the Holy Spirit, before the Spirit comes and enables them to do the work that God has for them, you find them together preparing for the Spirit to do the work. So how do they prepare? I think there's five ways that we can see that they prepare. I'm going to work through these pretty quickly. I just want you to see five aspects of the way that they prepare. First, they prepare by being obedient to Jesus. It says, first thing we read in chapter 12, in verse 12, that they return to Jerusalem. Jesus says, I want you to go and I want you to wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you know what they do? They go and they wait. Now, we just talked about this. This was probably against their natural inclination. But yet the disciples returned to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit just as they were commanded. They were probably very eager to get started. But their obedience to Jesus was more important than their intentions to serve him. See that? Their obedience was more important than their intention. Um, my dad used to tell me this story uh, when he was a kid. He was in high school. He had a teacher who there was a test that was coming up for the class. And the teacher got before the class and it had been a test that they were really studying for. And he told the class specifically, he said, I want you to follow my specific instructions. He says, here's what I want you to do. Before you answer a question, I need you to read through the entire test, every question. He said, read through every question. Don't answer anything. Just read through the questions before you start your test. And then take your test. 
And so he handed out the papers. My dad says that like a good portion of the class just disregards the instruction and they just start filling out the paper. They just start working on the test. And he said a couple of the folks that were listening to the directions of the teacher flip all the way through. They read every question, every question. And the very last question says, if you will simply sign your name to this piece of paper that you've read all the questions, you pass the test. And so they signed their name, they turned the test in blank, and they got A's. But the people would not listen to the directions in their intention to do well on the test, totally missed out. Why? Because their intention overrode their obedience. And we see here, even though the disciples have good intentions to begin the work of God, their obedience to Jesus overrides that. It says, no, no, we're going to stay and wait because that's what Jesus told us to do. In 1 Samuel 15, there's this great story about King Saul. And King Saul is trying to, uh, he, he's been disobedient to the Lord and he's waiting on Samuel. He's been told, no, no, no you're going to make a sacrifice to God, but I want you to wait on the prophet Samuel before you do this, before you make this sacrifice to the Lord. And it says that Samuel is delayed in getting there. And so Saul gets tired of waiting. So he just makes a sacrifice to the Lord without Samuel. And Samuel arrives and Saul says, you were late. Like we didn't know if you were coming. We didn't know what was going on. So we just made the sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel says, do you think the Lord wants your sacrifice more than he wants your obedience? And if I'm honest with myself, I fall into that trap a lot. Where I try to get my sacrifices for the Lord, my intention to do things well. And I'm not obedient. Jesus says, wait. So they wait. The way that we can most readily gauge our level of obedience is when Jesus' commands and our desires are at odds. That's, you want to know how obedient you are to Jesus? When Jesus' commands and your desires are at odds, who wins? Who wins? So we see the disciples, first way they prepare for the work of the Holy Spirit is by being obedient to Jesus' command. Secondly, we see that they're unified in their calling. Verse 14 tells us that all of these were together in one accord. All 120 people were united in their devotion to Jesus, their devotion to one another, and their desire to see the gospel spread. Now, what this does not mean is that all of the people in the room were the exact same, that you had 120 robots in the room. No, 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 you've got 120 people, different personalities, different gifts, probably different methods for the way that they think the gospel should spread. Ravi Zacharias, who's a great Christian thinker, once said that unity does not mean uniformity. So we see all of these different people, these different gifts, these different methods, but yet it says that they are united under a primary Lord and Savior. That together, even though they're very different, they're united under the cause to spread the gospel. And that above all, above all of their preferences, above all of their personalities, above all of their gifts, above all of their disagreements on how things should probably work, they were united together in the idea that Jesus is Lord and others need to know that. And as a church made up of unique individuals, you and I should have the same goal. We can have different opinions on things. 
We have different personalities and different gifts. But we will not be prepared to do the work of the Holy Spirit until we are united under the primary goal of the gospel spreading in our community and out from here. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He says, no, no, no. There are certain things that we're going to be able to disagree about. There are certain things that we're going to be able to kind of have differing methods on. But there is one primary thing that we must be united on all fronts about. And that is that Jesus is Lord. And that we're going to do everything we can to tell everybody we know that truth. We see that they were united together in their calling. With one accord. Third, it says they were devoting themselves to prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer. The Bible doesn't tell us what they prayed for, but just that prayer was a critical part of the early church. When Luke says that they were devoting themselves, it speaks of persistence with which they were praying. It says they were gathered together and they were persistently praying. Together. Why? Because it was their only form of communication with their Savior. Jesus had ascended. And so they're consistently, persistently praying, asking Jesus, what should we do? When should we go? Send the Holy Spirit. How should we go about doing the things that you've called us to do? Jesus had ascended to the Father. He was no longer present with them. So they had to use the only communication tool available to talk to the Father. Um, I travel uh, pretty often and, and, and um, get the opportunity to speak. And when I'm gone on the road, uh, the way that Allison and I communicate is, is by phone. Um, we talk on the phone quite a bit when I'm gone. Especially now that we have Titus. If I'm gone, I want to call. I want to check in and just say, hey, how are you? How's the baby? What's going on? Tell me about your day. How can I, how can I pray for you? How can, how can we kind of just catch up on things that are going on while I'm away? That's how we talk on the phone. Now, when I'm at home, I don't talk to her on the phone. Like, like she's not downstairs in the living room and I'm upstairs in our room and I'm calling her going, hey, babe, what's going on? Tell me about your day. Like that's dumb, right? It could be dumb. It'd run up our anytime minutes. Nobody wants to do that. So when I'm present, we don't need this form of communication. I can just walk downstairs and we can have these conversations. But when I'm away, we've got to use the tool that was created for that ability so that we can communicate. So we see Jesus has now gone away and the disciples are persistently, consistently praying together. Why? Because they know it's the only way that they're going to be able to talk to the Father. And just because he's gone away doesn't mean that they don't still need to communicate. It actually means they probably need to communicate more than they did even while, I, while he was here. And so we see them gathered together, devoting themselves to prayer. Jesus, tell us what you want us to do. Tell us where you want us to go. Give us the strength. Send the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a critical part of the early church gathering together. Not only were they praying, but they were studying the scriptures. Now, how do we know this? Well, Peter stands up. And he says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. 
And he begins to talk about Judas and how Judas, uh, how the um, predict, how the prophecy that Judas would betray them actually finds its roots all the way back in the Psalms, all the way back in the Psalms. Peter says the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jew- Judas, who became a guide to those who was arrested. And he says it was written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. So it says that while they're together, they're studying the scriptures. They're looking through the scriptures. And it says that Jesus, before he left, had opened their eyes to see all of the ways that the Old Testament had prophesied about him. And now that Jesus has gone, you find the disciples together and they're just pouring over the scriptures because they want to know more. It says that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus and they find in the Psalms where David had prophesied that. So we see the disciples using the scriptures as their guide to interpreting the things that had happened. All of a sudden it's like, why didn't we see this before? Like it's right here. And they read further in the Psalms where David says, let another take his office. And they go, this is what we're supposed to do. So you see the disciples gathered together in the early church using the scriptures as their guide to interpreting the things that had happened and for understanding the things that they were to do. In much the same way, as a church, we use God's word, truth of God's word speaking to us today to interpret and look at the things that are happening and have happened. And we use it as our guide for what we're supposed to do. How do we respond? How do we grow in grace and truth? So we see in the early church a knowledge of and a submission to the scriptures was critical in the life of the early believers. Finally, the last thing that we see is that they are submitted to the authority of the apostles. So we had 120 folks, all disciples of Jesus. But yet Jesus had given specific leadership responsibility to the 11 original disciples. He says, I'm going to use the 11 of you to really kind of be the leaders of this group. And specifically, he calls Peter. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we see Peter Standing with Jesus and Jesus saying, you feed my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me. And so we have Peter established as the kind of the pastor here of this early group of believers. And we have the other 10 disciples alongside of him. Leading, shepherding, guiding the people. And we see that the people are submissive to the authority of the apostles. It says the apostles gather together and they say, we've got to find somebody else. And there's specific qualifications that they're looking for. They said, it's got to be somebody who's been with us from the beginning. It's got to be somebody who's seen the resurrected Jesus. And they find two men, Barsabbas and Matthias. And it says they pray and they go, Lord, you know the hearts of these men. Show us which one of them you would have to be with us in leadership, in shepherding. It says that they choose Matthias. So we see that the early church was under the leadership of qualified godly men who Jesus was holding responsible for shepherding and caring for the early church. How come these men get to lead? 
How come these men get to lead? Because they were the best? No, because God chose them and called them to leadership. He has specific roles for everybody in the room, but he's chosen these 12 men to be the leaders. And he's asked the rest of them to submit to the authority, the leadership, as they shepherd them, as they lead them, as they submit themselves to God for the others to follow the example of qualified leaders. Now, some of us would go, well, okay, I got, what about the other people? Didn't they want to be leaders? This leadership wasn't without its costs, wasn't without its difficulties. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. It says that Jesus calls them to be leaders, but then he says, but I'm going to judge you with a greater strictness for the way that you shepherd the people. All of the apostles, the original 12 apostles, all of them are eventually martyred except for one. Peter's crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was crucified. James was pushed off the temple and then they believe that he was chained to horses and they whipped the horses in opposite directions and pulled him apart. All of them are martyred except for John, but John was boiled alive in hot oil and then left to die in solitary confinement in prison. Every one of these men counted the cost of leadership. And every one of them were paid the ultimate price to be the leaders and the shepherds of this early church. And God used each of them powerfully. And we see that they're gathered together, 120 people under the leadership of the apostles. And the people recognize God's calling on their lives. They recognize that God has given these men charge to shepherd them and love them and care for them and pastor them. They submit to that leadership. In much the same way, today, the church is called to operate under qualified, godly leadership. And he's given the church shepherds and pastors and leaders who God will judge with greater strictness and who he will ask much of. And he's asked the church to willingly, humbly submit to that leadership. Maybe you're here. Maybe you feel like you're being called into a position of leadership. That's incredible. We actually have a leadership pipeline that you can follow, that there are certain steps you can take to become a qualified, godly leader at the church at Cane Bay. It's not for everybody. It wasn't supposed to be for everybody. But if you feel a specific call to leadership in the church, then we want to give you an opportunity to do so. But we're not just going to establish any person in leadership because they feel like they should lead. That's not the way that we see the early church operating. So how are they preparing for the work of the Spirit? How do we find the disciples preparing? We find them being obedient to Jesus. We find them unified in their calling. We find them devoted to prayer. We find them studying the scriptures. We find them submitted to the authority of the apostles. And I believe the early church gives us incredible insight on how we should prepare for the work of the Holy Spirit. 
I, I venture to guess that if I asked everybody in this room, are you interested in seeing God do an incredible work at the church at Cane Bay? I would say probably 99 to 100% of you would say, yes, we want to see God do great things in our church, in our community. We want to see God save people. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see families reconciled. We want to see relationships restored. We want to see this community changed by the gospel. I would venture to say that all of us would be in that boat to say, yes, this is what we want to see. But my question that I want you to think through right now is how are you individually and how are we collectively preparing if God wants to do that work? Are are we prepared for God to do that work? Because faithful preparation is the necessity for fruitful production. If God's going to do fruitful production in our community, then we have to be faithfully prepared for him to do it. So my question for me as one of your pastors and for you as church partners, as members of the Big C Church, how are you preparing for the Holy Spirit to work in and through you to do the work that he wants to do in this community? And if we're not preparing ourselves, how do we ever expect God to do a work? Just like I talked about at the beginning, like I, I can sit and look at my grass all day, but it's not going to go, it's not going to be green. It doesn't work like that. I've got to be faithful to prepare and do the hard work and the labor for the production to happen. If God's going to do a great work in this community, which I believe he wants to do, then you and I as believers in Christ need to be faithfully prepared for him to do it. So how are we preparing? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And God, uh, we gather this morning and and say, uh, I would say with almost unison that we want to see you do an incredible work in our community. And God, we've desired that from the minute that we started to gather together. But Father, we read about the apostles, we read about the early church, and we see, God, that they didn't just sit back and wait for you to do an incredible work. No, no, no. They find them together, collectively preparing to be used by you. We find them collectively preparing for you to work through them. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that this might be a morning where we as a church begin to say collectively, God, we want to see you do a great work. But, God, we want to make sure that we're prepared for you to do it in and through us. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that does the work of production and also does the work of preparation. God, we have your Holy Spirit in us right now that's teaching us to be obedient to Jesus, that's allowing us to be unified together, that's beckoning us to pray and ask you to do a great work, God, that's showing us, enlightening the scriptures in a way, God, that we might know who you are and what you desire of us, Father. And the Holy Spirit is called qualified godly leadership, Father, and is calling us to lead and shepherd well, and is calling others to submit and serve and work for the good of your kingdom in this community. So I pray, God, this morning that we would work hard to that end, that as we faithfully prepare 
God, you would do a fruitful work in this community. Thank you for the example of the apostles. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.